0: Well, we're continuing our sermon series through Matthew's Gospel, paying attention to what Matthew's Gospel shows us about Jesus and how we are called to follow Jesus as disciples. This passage has a memorable contribution to Jesus' to Jesus's portrait of what it means to follow Him. These words, if you've been around church very long, are perhaps familiar to us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Dot, dot, dot. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are serious words. Jesus speaking in a Jewish context in the first century expects his listeners to understand these ideas of what it would mean to treat someone as a Gentile or as a tax collector. A Gentile is somebody who does not belong to the covenant community. And a tax collector, in the context of first century Jewish people, a tax collector was someone who betrayed the covenant community. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you Like someone who does not belong to the covenant community or like somebody who has betrayed the covenant community. These are heavy words. Serious words. What is this passage talking about? The simple phrase that we use for this when we talk about it in terms of Christian theology is to say that this passage is part of the New Testament's teaching about what we sometimes call church discipline. But what does that mean? That itself requires more reflection. And that idea of church discipline requires more reflection in part because it has often been misused and misapplied. In... The year 1521, Pope Leo X and Emperor Charles V agreed to announce the excommunication of Martin Luther from the Church of Jesus Christ on the basis of this kind of reasoning, like what we read here in Matthew chapter 18. Well, it won't surprise you because you realize that this is a Protestant church that grows out of the family tree of Protestant churches that in some ways was born with that decision to excommunicate Martin Luther in 1521. It won't surprise you to hear that my evaluation of that scenario was that the idea of excommunication, the idea of hearing Martin Luther's critiques of church leadership and deciding the way that the church leadership should respond to his theological critiques is to cut him off from the church and to treat him as someone who does not belong to the covenant community or as somebody who has betrayed the covenant community. It won't surprise you to hear that I think that was the wrong move. That was church discipline misapplied, wrongly applied in 1521. Earlier this year, in 2023, my wife Katie and I had an opportunity to sit down with a husband and a wife who had been through a harrowing journey in the Baptist church that they had participated in. Along the way, The wife that we were talking with, our friends, had raised concerns about how the elders were leading their Baptist church. She felt that their leadership was heavy-handed, authoritarian, smothering, domineering. And she had reason to back that up. And as best as I can tell, she Explained her perspective very clearly. Laid out her experiences. Laid out her concerns alongside scripture. And appealed to the elders to consider her concerns. Their reply was to send a letter to the church explaining that she was divisive slanderous and rebellious in spirit and to communicate to members of the church at least in effect if not in actual quote to treat her as a gentile or as a tax collector to treat her like somebody who did not belong to the covenant community Or to treat her as somebody who had betrayed the covenant community. Brothers and sisters. I'm pretty sure that was a misapplication. Of church discipline. Brothers and sisters. I'm pretty sure that is a use of the words of Jesus Christ. That does more harm than good. You see what. Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew chapter 18 is not how leaders can silence those who criticize them. What Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 18 is how followers of Jesus can seek to restore, can seek to restore one sibling who has sinned. Jesus puts it like this in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Jesus is not laying out detailed instructions for everything that ever might fall under the category heading of church discipline. And that's why later on in the New Testament, if you look, for example, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it appears that Paul is leading a process of church discipline that doesn't follow Jesus' rules here in Matthew chapter 18. Why? Because this isn't a... A military instruction manual meant to give details for every tactical operation. It's a case study. It's one example. And it's one example that begins with this scenario. If your brother sins against you. And when Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. He's calling to mind a relatively well-known teaching from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. The law of Moses contained this instruction in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 17. It says in one modern translation, rebuke your neighbor frankly. Or in another modern translation... Confront your neighbor directly. It sounds in the original languages a lot like what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. You see, Jesus is not talking here about every kind of scenario. Jesus can imagine scenarios where your brother has something against you. That's what he talks about in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're the one who's wronged your brother, go and seek to be reconciled. Jesus is not talking here about a scenario that he can imagine where both parties have significant responsibility to bring to the table. Jesus can picture that scenario in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, first, take the log out of your own eye so that that you may see clearly when you confront your brother. Jesus is not talking about every kind of scenario here, but he zoomed in on one kind of scenario in which one brother has clearly sinned against you. What kinds of sins might that include well let's consider the context of leviticus chapter 19 leading up to that phrase that jesus is echoing leviticus chapter 19 verse 11 says this do not steal do not lie do not deceive one another do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what kinds of sins might Jesus have in mind when he says, "If your brother sins against you, do you know that Do you know that feeling when somebody has stolen from you?" Or that feeling when you realize that someone has lied to you? Do you know what it's like when somebody has intentionally deceived you with half truths that are meant to steer you in the wrong direction? Have you ever had a brother in the church wrong you financially? Have you ever felt belittled? Leviticus 19 speaks specifically of mocking a person for their disabilities, deafness, blindness. Have you felt mocked, sadly, by people who claim to be following the Lord? Have you ever felt slandered? As you realize that he is spreading things about me that are intended to cast me in a negative light, these are painful experiences. They're painful experiences. That might lead us to want to seek revenge. They're painful experiences that might lead us to want to bear a grudge, as Leviticus 19 puts it. They're painful experiences that might lead us to want to double down in resentment against that brother. The teaching of the law of Moses says, don't seek revenge. Don't bear a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. And don't just keep on tolerating that indefinitely over and over and over again with no accountability. Instead, rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. This is the teaching that Jesus is picking up and leading us into. This passage is not, as I said a moment ago, about how to silence those who criticize leadership. Rather, this passage is about how we seek to restore. One who has strayed into harming others. Through sinful behavior. And if your brother sins against you. What should you do? What should we do? What steps would we take if we find ourselves in such a situation with a brother who would steal from us or lie to us? Or defraud us or belittle us? or slander us instead of bearing a grudge instead of seeking revenge what should we do i want to suggest to you three three things that jesus is teaching us to do here when a brother sins against you three things if your brother sins against you first of all remember the good shepherd If your brother sins against you, remember the good shepherd. We looked at this part of the passage last week, but the logic of Jesus' ongoing teaching in Matthew 18 is interwoven in such a way that I don't think we should draw a sharp line in between verses 14 and 15 and leave that behind. That's why I asked Greg to read these verses again this week. If your brother sins against you, one of the first and most fundamental things that we should do is remember the good shepherd. Jesus tells this story in verses 10 through 14 about a sheep that was lost. A sheep that had wandered astray. A sheep that is currently vulnerable. A sheep that is separated from the rest of the flock. A sheep that feels distant and isolated and alone? And what do you think, Jesus says? If a good shepherd has a hundred sheep and 99 of them are here and one is not, what will a good shepherd do? A good shepherd is not rejoicing. You know what? I got 99 good sheep. Who cares about that annoying sheep that strayed? It probably would have tried to bite me anyway. No. A good shepherd doesn't carry resentments. Doesn't seek any kind of revenge. Doesn't take pleasure in the increased vulnerability of the sheep that has strayed. A good shepherd will go and seek to find that sheep right where it is. He will go to seek and find that sheep, not just by standing there and saying, I'm waiting for the sheep to come back. And once the sheep can find its own way back to the rest of us, then we'll welcome it. No, a good shepherd will go and find that sheep where that sheep is. And when the good shepherd finds the sheep, what is the attitude that the shepherd demonstrates? It's not an attitude that demonstrates, this was so hard for me, you rotten little sheep. No, it's an attitude of sheer joy in In delighting in the one sheep that was lost and now is found. This is perhaps the most important part of the story that Jesus tells in verses 10 through 14, there in verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. Do you know what it feels like to be a wandering sheep found by the good shepherd? It's not humiliating and belittling. It's not an experience of utter humiliation. It's not an experience that communicates. It's not a, an experience of feeling judged. I'm telling you from my own experience of having been a wandering sheep. To be found by the good, by the good shepherd is an experience of love. To be found by the Good Shepherd is to experience His joy. His joy in restoring even one like me. Do you know what it's like to be restored by the Good Shepherd? In fact, verse 13 maybe tries to get under our skin a little bit. By pointing out that a good shepherd will rejoice more over the one that is restored than over the 99 that are back in the fold. Maybe that's meant to get under our skin in a certain kind of way. And if that bothers you a lot, Jesus told another story that you should go and read in Luke chapter 15. It's called the parable of the prodigal son and it has a surprise ending written just for us. But this is perhaps even meant to get under our skin. Jesus rejoices in the one more than he rejoices in the ninety nine. According to Jesus, that's how the good shepherd views the one who has strayed. And therefore, here's here's a question I want to put in front of us. Can a church be too merciful toward those who have wandered? Can a church love one rebellious teenager too much? Can a church welcome back a wanderer too warmly? Can a church embrace a doubter too graciously? Not if our job is to represent the good shepherd who rejoices in the one. You see, according to Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who represents the heart of our Father Himself, the Good Shepherd rejoices. He rejoices to restore the one wanderer. And that's what we as a church are called to join the Father in. We're called to rejoice over one wanderer. We're called to be a community that reflects His heart of love for the one that went astray. His heart of love for the one who doubted. His heart of love for the one who has rebelled. His heart of one who has felt isolated and distant. Our church family is meant to reflect His heart. And therefore, I want to suggest we cannot be too merciful, too gracious, too kind, too welcoming, too loving, even toward the one who has wandered. In fact, as we get to the depths of our Lord's heart, I think we will, be a, we will become increasingly a community that, like our Father in heaven, would rejoice even more over that one than over the 99 who, as it would appear, never went astray. Our Lord's heart rejoices to restore the wanderer. And that's what we're called to join him in. If your brother sins against you, remember the good shepherd and his heart of love. His heart that loves to restore the one who has wandered. But that's not all this passage puts in front of us. It not only calls us to remember the Good Shepherd, it also calls us to take steps to restore. It calls us to take steps toward restoration. And so in verses 15 through 17, almost as if these are application points of what Jesus was saying in that parable of the Good Shepherd, Almost as if Jesus realizes you're going to need some steps to take if you're going to follow the heart of the Good Shepherd. Almost as if he realizes we're going to need to know what that might look like. He gives us this example. What about a brother who has sinned against you? And maybe this is different than a scenario where you have sinned against a brother. Maybe this is different than a scenario where you've both sinned against each other in such a way that you should focus on taking the log out of your own eye first. But what about that kind of scenario where your brother has sinned against you, lying to you, cheating you, slandering you? What should you do in such a situation? Well, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, here's kind of step A, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That doesn't suggest, again, that in every scenario, this is the only way that it will work out. If you sin against four people at once, it might be appropriate in the context of that gathering to have a conversation about it right away. We don't need to insist on pulling someone aside uh, as if that's the only way to confront somebody. Similarly, this is a passage about if your brother sins against you. Sadly, I've heard bosses in Christian contexts insist that if Christian employees didn't bring the concern straight to them, but went over their head to a boss, that those concerns should be dismissed as if the bigger deal here were just how to protect leaders from criticism. But if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And here's the thing. Here's the incentive. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And listen, right away we're confronted with two challenges that many of us feel. Something of a tension maybe that we feel inside, but probably most of us are predisposed to one side of this verse or another. Maybe some of us have a hard time actually finding the motivation to go and address that conflict, to go and address that situation that needs to be addressed. Maybe we'd rather just live with the unpleasant consequences than go and show a brother a fault. Maybe we're so afraid of the tension that it might bring into a relationship that we're unwilling to address serious situations that should be addressed. And if that's our challenge, Jesus says, here's a direction for you, go, it's going to take moving sometimes. And tell him, it's going to require opening your mouth and starting a conversation. Show him his fault, which might require some reasoning, and opening a Bible and saying, here's what the Bible says, and here's my experience that I've had around you recently. And as I compare my experience around you recently and what the Bible says, Think as best as I can see, I think you need to take this seriously. Sometimes we need to be motivated by Matthew 18, 15 to go and do the uncomfortable work of starting a hard conversation. But here's the thing others of us we love conflict. We charge right into it. And you hear that verse in Leviticus that says, Rebuke your neighbor frankly, and you're like, my verse. Life verse right there. Give me people. My name is Frank and I'd like to rebuke. Right. Um, Like this is this is for me. And if that's you, I think there's also something here in this verse that speaks to you. Do you notice the aim? Jesus doesn't say when somebody sins, now's your opportunity to smack down. Now is your opportunity to beat somebody up emotionally. Now is your opportunity to vent and let them have your full rage. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what Leviticus 19 was talking about, right? Here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, here's the goal. The goal is to gain your brother. In our going, there should be an aim to win. In the opening of our mouths, there should be an aim to gain. In the confrontation over sin, there should be a heart that reflects our own Lord's heart. A heart that will be eager to rejoice in restoration. And just like when our Lord rebuked us in our sins, that shouldn't feel belittling, demeaning, harsh, domineering or overbearing. It should feel like it should feel like an echo. Of the Good Shepherd's own heart, eager to rejoice over the one who has wandered. But Jesus doesn't end here because sometimes people don't listen, do they? In verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This leads us into another teaching from the book of Deuteronomy, but I won't get into that now. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, this is one example, one case study that Jesus gives us, one picture of what it might look like to follow the good shepherd in seeking to restore one who has wandered. But from this picture, I think we can draw a few relevant principles that apply broadly. And I would name these principles like this. First of all, in the process of Christian accountability and restoration, we aim to keep the circle as small as possible. Jesus says in verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Sometimes keeping the circle as small as possible Won't be only me and you. It won't be you and him alone. Sometimes it will necessarily involve a few other people. Who are already involved in the situation. And nonetheless there should be an aim in Christian accountability and restoration. To keep that circle. As small as possible. While we give time and space. For somebody to listen. But in addition to keeping the circle as small as possible. There's also an impulse to keep the process as fair as possible. That's the thing that Jesus brings up in verse 16. If your brother does not listen. Take two or three others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We aim to keep the process as fair as possible. And in addition to that, when we pursue somebody for the sake of Christian accountability and restoration, we also want to keep the aim as hopeful as possible. Why do I say that? Because as the circles slowly expand in Jesus' teaching from you and him alone to a few others who can weigh out what is said to even in verse 17 taking it to the church. Throughout this process, what is the aim? That your brother will listen and so be gained. That your brother will listen and so be one that your brother will listen and so be restored in full fellowship. Throughout this process, it's not like we start hopeful. I go and I can and I bring up the issue one on one and my brother doesn't listen. So now I kind of give up hope and I just say, "Bring on church discipline. Let him have it." No. <laughs> The heart throughout is, if you won't listen to me, I'd like to involve a few other people to make sure you're getting a fair hearing, to make sure I'm not misunderstanding, to make sure other people can get eyes on this and see what I might be missing or what you might be missing. And if you won't even listen to them, we take it eventually according to the teaching of Jesus to the church. But even then, the goal is that he would listen. That your brother would be gained, won, and restored. See, throughout, we keep the aim as hopeful as possible. We keep the circle as small as possible, only slowly expanding it. We keep the process as fair as possible, listening as carefully as we can to everybody involved. And we keep the aim as hopeful as possible aiming for an outcome of reconciliation and restoration. But even then, Jesus points out in verse 17, sometimes that brother who has lied to you, that brother who has cheated you financially, that brother who has slandered you, and spread a negative opinion about you in front of other people, it's possible that brother won't listen to you, won't listen to the reasoning of a few other reasonable people, and won't even listen to the church. And what do we do in that case? We have an o- obligation, according to Jesus, to say to that person, We no longer count you as a member of this covenant community. And that even then is not born out of hate. Why do we do that? We do it out of love for that person. In hopes that it will lead to further restoration. We do it in love for the church itself. To protect the vulnerable within the church who might be hurt in the future apart from accountability. We do it with love for the world in order to protect the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in alignment with his teaching. And we do it above all out of love for Jesus saying this is your church and we'll follow your ways. If your brother sins against you, first of all, we should remember the Good Shepherd. Secondly, we should take steps that seek to restore. And thirdly, I have a hard time figuring out how to phrase what I've gathered together here as the third point, but I'll put it something like this. Thirdly, we need to consider Christ's perspective of this whole situation. We need to consider Christ's perspective Because after Jesus shows this pathway for accountability and restoration, which may end up in a brother unwilling to even listen, we may follow that process and end up saying to somebody, We can no longer count you as a part of this covenant community. You're not, as far as we can tell, listening to God's word. You're not listening to our appeals either. And then listen to these astonishing claims that Jesus makes beginning in verse 18. I mean, they're astonishing to me, and I've been reading them for a long time. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This language of binding and loosing in Jewish culture had to do with belonging to a community. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose or free on earth shall be loosed or freed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, right away, as we hear this astonishing series of claims, we need to notice a couple of things. We need to notice that if we take the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Bible seriously, which we should, then we should understand that you and I cannot make somebody a Christian. You and I can't get somebody into heaven. Only Jesus can do that. We can't make somebody a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, according to Jesus, we have a responsibility to declare people to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven or not. We can't get people into heaven. But apparently, according to Jesus, as members of his body, we're supposed to make declarations The second thing we should notice is that churches and church leaders sometimes get this dead wrong. I began with a couple of examples of that earlier. And therefore, as we read verses 18 through 20, we should read them with a certain measure of humility, realizing it's possible to get this wrong. But nonetheless, my aim is not to tell you what these verses don't mean. My aim is to take these verses seriously along with y'all today. And if we take these verses seriously, and Jesus' claim that when even two or three Christians gather and agree, Jesus says, I'm right there with them. If we take that seriously, that should do at least two things to us. First of all, it should lead us to take church accountability more seriously if we are the one doing the confronting. This should lead us to take church accountability more seriously, more sober-mindedly when we are the ones who have to confront somebody else. Why? Because to take the Lord's name in vain is a really big deal. And therefore, when we confront somebody else, and especially as we go further in that process, and if we end up every once in a while as a church family having to say this person's unwillingness to even listen has led us to a place of saying he or she is no longer a part of this covenant community. We should do that seriously and sober-mindedly. But this should also lead us to take church accountability more seriously and more sober-mindedly if we are being confronted by others. When a couple of brothers and sisters raise a concern, this should be concerning. This should land with a certain kind of weight in our hearts. A kind of weight that we won't just run away from or close our ears to. But a kind of weight that should say, I take this seriously. Because Jesus himself might be in this. Of course, as I've acknowledged twice already, churches and church leaders can get this wrong. At some point, you'll need to give an account to your own creator. But when members of Jesus' body come and confront us, there should be a certain kind of seriousness that we attach to that. At least as Jesus himself has described it to us. You see, the presence of Christ with his people gives a certain gravity to our confrontations. It gives a certain gravity to our attempts at accountability. It gives a certain gravity even to what we do when we get together in men's and women's fellowship groups and we encourage one another. We open the Bible. And we open our lives and we talk to one another and we pray for one another. This should give a certain gravity to that because Jesus says, I'm there with you in that. But the presence of Christ is not only bad news, is it? See, the presence of Christ in Christian accountability is only bad news if we refuse to the end to humble ourselves. The presence of Christ in Christian accountability is only bad news if we refuse to listen to his voice. But if, on the other hand, we do humble ourselves when confronted by Christ's body. If, on the other hand, we do listen to his voice, even when his voice comes uncomfortably from a brother or sister who is raising concerns when we humble ourselves and we listen, the presence of Christ is not bad news. It is the best news in the world. Because Christ is not only present in our midst to rebuke, to discipline, and to confront. Christ is in our midst, brothers and sisters, to forgive, to restore, and to love us, to even rejoice over us. With the love of a good shepherd who says, my beloved sheep. You see, in the story of the good shepherd who went and sought out one lost sheep. It cost him a few days of seeking. But we know that with our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us these words in Matthew 18. It cost him something far deeper than a few days. It cost him his very own life to find you and me and lost sheep around this room and lost sheep who aren't even here yet today and lost sheep from here to the ends of the earth. It cost him his very life to find us right where we were in our lostness to embrace us in his love and to begin rejoicing over us forevermore. Our wandering is so serious that it cost Jesus not just a few days, but his very life. But his heart to restore is so serious that what was unleashed when he laid down his life for us was not a few days of a little bit of restoration, but an eternity of rejoicing together in his love. Brothers and sisters, let's take that seriously. A pastor that I know tells a story about church accountability that gladdens my heart. There are plenty of stories about church accountability gone awry that sadden my heart. But one of my friends tells a story about church accountability that gladdens my heart. He tells about a woman in his church who was guilty of serious sin. I'll leave it at that for now. And when she was confronted by another church member at first, she denied her sin. She denied any part of it. Eventually, she admitted What she had done, but she didn't want to turn away from it. So two other brothers, so to speak, were brought into the situation. In this case, those two other brothers were my pastor friend and his wife. They talked with her. They reasoned with her. They shared scripture with her, and I'm sure they prayed with her. And the woman's heart began to soften. And after some time she repented of her sin. And she was fully restored in fellowship with her church family. Speaking as a pastor, this is the part of the story that I love best. My pastor friends distributes the bread and the cup himself on Sundays when they give out the Lord's Supper. And when he talks about this story, he says, when I give out the bread and the cup, I know I'm not supposed to have favorites. But he says, she's my favorite. She comes to the table with a rare mixture of hunger and joy. Hunger because she knows she needs Jesus' forgiveness. And joy because she rejoices in having received it. And my brother, my friend, my pastor friend, gives to us a picture of what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to share in the Good Shepherd's heart. Sharing in the Good Shepherd's heart is not avoiding confrontation when it's needed. It's not pretending like no harm has ever been done. Sharing in the heart of the Good Shepherd means going and finding one lost sheep right where he or she is. And joining with the Good Shepherd in rejoicing over the one that had wandered even more than the ninety-nine never left and brothers and sisters as we consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us as we consider his teaching to be people who follow him and not just ignoring sins and hurts and wrongs but in going and finding one brother who has sinned against us let's do so as people who rejoice in knowing the heart of our great Redeemer, who came and found us and brought us into his rejoicing forevermore.